Welcome to the Responsible Digital Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Kova, and today we are joined by our guest, Chris Crespo. Chris is the co-founder of the financial media companies Nordic Fintech Magazine and Fast Forward Banking. He's a behavioral economist, and throughout his career, Chris has been working with innovative technologies and its intersection with financial services, society, and culture. In this episode, we explore the topics of digital transformation and looming questions of ethics within open banking, as well as the role of governments in distributive banking and blockchain technologies. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Chris, it's great to have you here. I'm excited to talk to you and get your insights on digital transformation in the financial sector. But let's start. How are you doing, and where are you zooming us from? I'm I'm joining him from Denmark. Uh, it's uh, it's about four in the afternoon, and it's already almost pitch black. So that's the winter <laughs> that's the winter months for us. Uh, I'm I'm the opposite here on the west coast. It, it's getting light at about seven a.m. Uh, the time it is right now, but. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you and get it going. So last time I heard you speak was when you presented to the Responsible Digital Leadership Project in April, and you spoke on the topics of digital revolution and digital transformation. So what is digital transformation and what does it mean for the financial sector? Well, so digital transformation, I would say is that it's basically, uh, it's it's the response that has triggered a digital disruption across all industries. Um, I think if you if you look back, maybe let's say 10, 15 years, it started with media, um, leisure and, and, and travel also got a little bit of that, but um, traditionally financial services has been a bit, a bit slow in the uptake of digital transformation. And essentially digital transformation, what it means is how can we ensure that we are able to meet customers on digital channels as well as on, as on our physical ones, right? So, so the, the entire effort for, for transforming organizations digitally has been making sure that their products and services are available on digital channels, but also to make sure that their internal processes are digitalized in a way that handovers in processes can become automated, right? And that's been, of course, given the complexity of financial services, that's been a really, really complex process, both, uh, both for, for the organization as, as well as for the, let's say, the, the front end where customers can come and and, and buy products and services from, from financial organizations. Now, I think part of the reason that it's been so difficult to achieve successful digital transformations has been because the digital transformation comes or should come accompanied with a mindset. So an example of this is if you see, if you see all the, the, native, the digital native companies, which are the companies have a, that have been sprouting out over the past, let's say 15 years, they don't have any legacy, right? They don't have any legacy when it comes to systems because they built everything from scratch, or at least they didn't have any legacy at the moment in which they launched. But they also didn't have any legacy on the mindset because they came in with fresh ideas, with a fresh way of doing things. So that, that notion of this is how it's always been done in this industry was not present in those organizations. Now, I think the particular problem that presents when, when incumbent companies want to transform digitally is that they look at what's happening in the market and they say, okay, well, there's a lot of innovation happening in different pockets within the startup community. Maybe we can copy that. So often what happens is that, let's say a bank will, will gather all the decision makers and say, let's go to Silicon Valley, let's go talk to Facebook, let's, uh, let's talk to Netflix, let's see what they're doing differently. So they go over there, they come back to the office inspired, they say, oh, wow, it's amazing what they're doing in terms of processes and how they organize their teams in tribes and how they communicate, how they, they distribute governance and decision-making. Let's do the same. So they go into this 
transformative programs where they, they try to emulate what they've seen externally. And what they find is that, I think it's something like 80% of, of, of cases, they fail. They fail to transform. And the reason for that is that they copy what they see, but they don't copy the mindset that originated those actions, right? The, the example I, I, I often use is, it's like taking a seed from a lush and fertile ground and then trying to bring it over and plant it in a dry, arid land. And of course, it's, it's not going to flourish, right? Because the, the organizational mindset needs to be there to begin with if you're to transform digitally in a successful way. Yeah, I, I think that's it's just generally what's understood by a digital transformation. And what are some of the main attributes of a digital mindset? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think there's, there's certain things that digital natives do very, very differently to incumbents. Um, you can, I'm, I'm sure I'm gonna miss out on some, but, but first of all is their, their, their attitude towards experimentation, right? Especially if you look at the financial services, because of the, uh, the, 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 the let's say the, the secrecy or the, the confidentiality of the nature of, of the financial transactions uh, and the very tight regulation, uh, financial institutions have always been very inward looking. They've always been very self-sufficient. And they say, okay, well, we don't put a product to market until the product is been approved, vetted, validated by every single committee and the product runs as it should, right? Because we work in a very tight regulation um, frameworks. Um, in contrast, uh, startups and, and fintechs, they go and say, well, let's, let's test, let's experiment, let's, let's, let's see what we can develop, let's test it with the market, let's iterate fast, let's make quick decisions. And of course, that's, that, from, from a cultural perspective, that's, that is really not how things have been traditionally done within financial services, where you have cycles that you know, can be up to 18 months between the point in which someone decides that a feature needs to be implemented in the banking app and the rollout of that feature, right? 18 months is, a, is, a, is, a, is an eternity. By then the market would have changed, the customer's behavior would have, would have shifted. So one, one, of, one of those key attributes, I would say it's their attitude towards experimentation. Um, there's also an element of design thinking, right? Um, I think traditionally banks tend to build products and services on the basis of the cap their capabilities. They look inside and they say, what, what, what are we good at? And they say, okay, well, how, how can we package this into a new product and put it out to market? When, on, in contrast, startup companies look at the market and say, what does the market need? What, is, what, what could be a solution that can address a particular need that the market has? And then they, they get together and they work on a solution that has an adequate market fit. Um, uh, you have things like experiential, uh, experiential learning, right? Uh, this, this idea of, well, we'll develop something and then we'll test it and then we'll learn from it and then we'll iterate and then we'll improve the product on the basis of what we're learning from the market. It's not something that traditionally happens within, within incumbent organizations. Let me think what else. Uh, the, the, as you can see, there's, there's really a, a contrast in values, uh, very much about how you go about building solutions, addressing your customer concerns, and then putting products to market that, that serve those concerns. I would say there's, a, there's an element as well of uh, well, this whole idea of, of, of entrepreneurship, right? Of, uh, if we traditionally in financial services, if you have a product that sells very well, you don't want to touch it. It's like, that's, that's our star product, leave it alone. 
right? When, well, I think the startup community, community is, is much more prone to say, well, we have a product here. How can we improve it? How can we disrupt our own products? And that, of course, creates a lot of friction, especially when we have large organizations on which, uh, which, which have already products in the market uh, on which a lot of the revenue depends on. Uh, you know, that, that's, that approach to creative destruction and, and, and internal innovation and internal disruption, it's, it's part of what I would call a digital mindset. And, and of course, it doesn't always compute well within, within incumbents. There is also an element here about the understanding of digital. Um, I think the main, so what, what I mean here is that I've, I've worked in financial services organizations, which are really big banks that at least at the very beginning, and we're, we're going back a few years, right? I think now things have shifted, especially after, after the pandemic, but uh, traditionally, uh, let's say four or five years ago, they would say, um, yeah, we're, we're digital. You know, here's our PDF. So, so we're very digital, right? So this understanding of the, making a clear distinction between digitizing something and being digital, it's a, it's a key feature that very often goes uh, those uh, perhaps creates ambiguity and confusion in organizations, right? The fact that you're able to digitize things within your organization doesn't necessarily mean that you've, you're digital, right? Digital constantly looks at how do we remove friction? How can we make things simple and easy? How can we use technology to absorb complexity so that what we put in front of the customer, whether it's an external customer or, or an internal customer, becomes simple and easy and, and, and seamless and helps um, make the whole experience more convenient. And that, I think that, that also, it's, it's a bit of a contrast between incumbent organizations and, and digital native organizations. So being a part of this project for the past eight months, I've heard the term open banking with increasing relevancy. Um, so what is open banking? Why is it growing so fast? And was it, what is its relation to digital transformation? Yeah, so open banking is, it's a term that was, uh, I believe it was coined in the UK, uh, and it was, it was on the back of, of, of regulation that was really aiming at getting people to take ownership of their own data, right? So the whole idea behind open banking is that as a customer, you own your data and therefore you should decide who gets access to your data and for what purpose, right? Now, if you think about it, banks hold an enormous amount of data from customers, uh, partly because, well, they, they have information about transactions, about how much money is spent, uh, how regularly, et cetera, but also there's a lot of information that you need to provide to a, to a financial services institution before you can open an account with them. And that's, it's built like that for regulatory purposes, for KYC purposes and for anti-money anti laundering purposes, you have to identify yourself, you have to provide all this information, right? So this information exists within the bank's database. And the whole idea of open banking was to say, well, if, you, if that information is already there, shouldn't you be able to tell other companies or give permission to other companies to access that data rather than having to repeat the process of handing information over to multiple companies? So uh, very simply, it's, it, it started as, as, as an idea of let's get customers to allow permission to third parties to access the data that the banks already have about them so that they can provide products and services to them. Um, now, the whole idea of open banking grew even further when in the European Union, the, the, the European Commission um, created a number of, of, uh, of directives that, that increasingly forced banks to open up not just data, but also some of the functionalities that they had within their core banking platforms. Um, 
So we had PSD1 and then PSD2, which was implemented just a, just a year or, or two ago, uh, which basically just told banks that from a regulatory perspective, they needed to be able to, to make available the data and certain functionalities to third parties. Now, this all sounds very technical, but as a customer, the advantage of that is that, of course, you can now then get third parties that perhaps have interesting products and services, like let's say account aggregation. Let's say that you have more than one bank account. Well, you can you can give access to an aggregator to get, to access the data that exists within the bank's database and then present you with a single uh, screen view of all your accounts in one single interface, right? And that's usually the, the, most, the most common example of open banking. Um, now, at the, at the beginning, as you can imagine, then uh, all these banks started to develop the APIs that would allow third parties to connect, but there was a lot of problems with the APIs and there was a lot of complaints about the data being not real data, but dummy data that really didn't help a lot. But the industry has, has really evolved very quickly since then. And, uh, and to the point that now open data is a reality, is, is, is the, I would say the next frontier in being able to offer services to, to customers. And uh, what we've seen here in the Nordics is uh, the, earlier this year, there's been two really large scale acquisitions of open banking companies. Uh, it was in the beginning of the summer, um, Visa acquired uh, a Swedish open banking company called Tink for 1.8 billion euros, uh, massive, massive acquisition. And then a couple of months after that, MasterCard made its competitive move and acquired another open banking company, this, this time a Danish company called Aya for an, an amount that is yet undisclosed, but it was, you can see that the market is heating up, right? Um, now, if you think about how, what's the relationship with digital transformation? Well, well the idea of having open banking is that you're now being able to, to leverage the APIs that allow you to connect to banking systems to build new and more innovative uh, services and products for, for customers. Um, I can give you an example. Uh, you might have heard about buy now, pay later, which is this idea of you being able to access credit at the point of sale. Well, through, a, through an open banking interface, a bank could very easily offer similar services to their customers by just saying, well, you know, we know you, we, you already use our credit card, we have information about you, so we can, we can very easily activate a similar interface that will allow us to extend credit to you at the point of sale and say, you want to buy that TV? What about if you split it in four payments interest-free, right? So um, I think we're only just starting to scrape the surface of what open banking can do, but is this whole idea of being able to transfer data and functionality across different players in the industry that I think is going to enable a lot of innovation to come uh, to, to the customer's table. So there's a new term, it's an academic term to describe uh, the new data economy spurred on by open banking called surveillance capitalism. And it describes the market-driven process of surveying, analyzing, and selling personal data as a commodity. And, and the word surveil there is used kind of in a negative context, in a pessimistic context, due to the finance industry's long history of nefarious conduct. But there's a lot of... Uh, uh, more optimistic outlooks too. So what reasons do you think we have for being optimistic and embracing an economy where personal data is, an, is a commodity? I, th I think there's perhaps a risk of, 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 of leading the answer in a particular direction because I, I wouldn't say that we, we should be optimistic. I, I think we need to recognize that technology is amoral. It doesn't mean that it's immoral or that it's moral. It's just there's no morality inherently built in technology. It's just a simple tool. 
Now, of course, the use you give to that tool can be nefarious as well as can be very positive, right? So I think there is, there is concern about the, the potential negative use of these technologies is, is real and should not be downplayed because, well, <laughs> we, it's, it happens, you know, it's happened before. Uh, but, but also, I don't think we should, we should just say, oh, because there's the potential for nefarious use, therefore the technology is evil, right? You could, that would be equivalent to saying the, you know, the, the printing press was an evil technology because Hitler was able to publish Mein Kampf, right? It's, uh, it's that kind of dilemma. So I would say that there's definitely potential for abuse and misuse, and we should, we should be aware of that and therefore develop ways, regulation, to, to an extent that in, that makes sure that uh, the players that get access to the data cannot act in, in in a malicious way, but of course there's there's also the upside of it that's to say well okay if, if all this information can then start to be shared, then there's there's the potential for 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 an exponential explosion of new services that can make life far more convenient for us as consumers, and and I would say that every single thing that you think oh, this is just a little bit too annoying or this is a little bit too more there's a little bit too much friction in this process or uh, i can't believe i have to call my bank again just to get them to unfreeze my card or uh, i need to get a mortgage why do i have to wait three weeks to speak to an advisor all these little things that can be made more efficient more convenient more seamless could potentially be addressed with all this ability to share data and and uh, and, and functionality so the typical example would be like we use these things nowadays. Everyone has a mobile phone in their pockets. Um, well, that phone has a lot of information about what we're doing, right? So if at some point, let's say that you want to buy your first home and the phone notices that based on the location you're in, you're actually visiting a house that is for sale. Through open banking and through some automation on the back end, your bank or a third party provider could say, oh, uh, we noticed that you're browsing for houses. By the way, we've looked at your accounts and based on the information that we know about you, just we want to let you know proactively that you're already pre-approved for a mortgage of this, this amount. If you, if you were willing to make an offer of the house, know that the bank will support a mortgage of this much. Right? And this, that's just taking an initiative and, and sort of an, an approach that removes a lot of the complexity that you would have to deal with if you wanted to get that. And uh, it's a very practical example, but I think what's most interesting is perhaps the things that we can, can't yet start to imagine that we'll be able to build on the back of all these services that will happen because of the fact that uh, information is being shared. Um, but yeah, um, of course, I, I, I believe that the whole idea of surveillance capitalism is it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a possibility, it's a problem. It's a, we've already seen certain examples of misuse of data in, in, in certain companies around the world. So. Um, I think I would say that the answer is, is not to, to stop it, but is to ensure that there's adequate regulation to ensure that abuse does not happen, or at least to make it as difficult that we, as we possibly can for malicious agents to, uh, to wreak havoc. I completely agree with you that uh, regulation is, is important, but there is also a lag between regulation and innovation. So how do you think uh, leaders of uh, the financial sector should act responsibly when, and, and how should ethics be incorporated in digital mindsets? Well, so I think your question points out to a, a dilemma that is, it's, it's very important to address, not just, not just in this example, but in general, right? 
And the idea here is when you, it's the relationship between ethics and the law, right? And, and I think as individuals, we should aspire to have a, a higher ethical awareness that where, where the threshold is not, is it legal or not, right? Because there's a lot of things that are legal, but are necessarily ethical. Um, so I think if leaders, leaders should have, we should, we should expect higher, a higher ethical standard from leaders, not just from leaders from ourselves as well, but but from, from ourselves, from, from leaders, from, from people that work in, in, in different corporations to strive for a higher standard of ethics that is not just limited to what's legal and what's not. And if that is the case, then I think companies that are developing these sort of services uh, would have a much, a much more, again, an ethical approach to the way in which they develop their solutions, to the way in which they use data with, uh, and this can be things as being transparent, uh, as not hiding behind a whole bunch of legal legal jargon that no one reads, but just be, uh, as, as ensuring that they're um, fostering trust between their 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 customers and and the organization, uh, and just saying, look, if we want to use your data, let's say for commercial purposes, this is what we're going to use it for. But you have the right to tell us whether we can use it or we can't use it. And this is all all within. This is all. I think if you if you look at layers, right, you have law all the way at the bottom. This is several layers above what's legal, right? This is more about what's right. Um, now, of course, this is a very abstract idea, right? And it brings the question, what's right and who defines it? Which, of course, is a is an entire different discussion, I think. Yeah, that's that's one of the core questions of this project. Um... And, and it's it's taken a long time to get at it, and we still haven't found an answer, but but we're trying to find one. So you have a long career in the finance sector in Europe. In your experience, do you think that leaders in the financial sector care about what's doing right in the most part? Do they do they really want to do what's right, or is it usually the law that keeps players in check? <laughs> I, I would say that for the for the for the most part people have uh, an inherent desire to what's right to do what's right um i think as they say the the the, the way to hell is paved with good intentions right <laughs> um I, I think the problem comes when 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 you have to contrast those desires to say well do i do what's right or do i do what's profitable and and unfortunately i, I what i've seen is that very often when in public companies and this is important because I think public companies, they, they're, they're under pressure of a, from very different type, types of, of, uh, of, of dynamics, let's say, in the market. So, so public companies that, 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 uh, that ha have uh, that trade in the marketplace, they're usually being valued not on how ethical they are, but on how profitable they are. And of course, there's a case to be made to say, well, if a company in the long run is not ethical enough, their profit will suffer. And I, can, I think that's, that's potentially true, right? You can, you can perhaps go get away with doing or making dubious decisions in, in a few runs of, in the short term, but in the long term, you know, that could severely impact your profitability. It can impact your brand reputation. It can impact the trust that you have from customers. Now, the problem is that the incentives that are placed on leadership 
are short-term, right? They're, they're on a quarterly basis. So if at some point then you face a, a dilemma in which you say, should I do what's ethical or should I do what's profitable? Then if you take the ethical approach, then the market will, very, will punish you very quickly because you, you didn't take the profitable option, right? And then you'll be out of a job or you'll be, you know, they'll replace you. Um, so that compromise is something that, that, that companies face on a regular basis. And it, unfortunately, it's very, it's very difficult to, uh, to, to manage because the system doesn't, doesn't really reward eth ethical thinking in the short term. Um, I think you, have, you need to have some very determined leaders to say, we, we will act on the basis of principles. And our principle is that no matter, so our principle is a decision you make ahead of time. So you say, if our principle is that we will always take the ethical option, that we will always strive for the highest level of ethics, no matter how much profit we're um, foregoing. And that's how we make all our decisions. Then, then that starts defining a, an internal framework for each organization that, that I guess uh, speaks more to the moral compass rather than to what's dictated by the market. But I think it requires a very courageous leader with a very, uh, the, the, the very strong moral compass that can make those decisions. And I'm not sure if I speak for all of Generation Z, but I, I think consumers appreciate a, a company that has a purpose and, and has strong values. And if, I, if I'm given a choice between a range of companies, I will tend to give my business to the ones where they do make their values more prominent. The issue with expecting that is, is you're putting responsibility on consumers to drive what's ethical, whereas that's not going to happen most of the time. Most of the time, consumers are going to go to what's most convenient or what's cheapest. But I mean, you, you have a background in behavioral economics. Do you think that consumers are driving the change in digitalization or is it the business leaders? I think there's a little bit of both. The reason I say that is because Ultimately, we, we live in a, in a, in, in a system, in a, in, a, in a system of capitalism that is still governed by market dynamics. And you have supply and you have demand. You try to mold supply to say, okay, we have this regulation and then we, we, we want to force the market to act in a particular way. And you force supply. And let's say that supply says, okay, well, let's talk about sustainability, for example, which is a very hot topic. And let's say that from a supply perspective, regulation says, you can no longer buy meat. Right, because meat is very, is very highly pollutant. Now, we have two ways of doing that. It were either by persuasion, we, pers we, we persuade people that their, their consumption patterns affect uh, the environment, and therefore we, we, we inform them and we give them as much information for them to make their own decisions as to whether they want to continue to consume this, or we use regulation to make it extremely expensive for them to actually buy meat, right? I think the problem with that approach is that if, if, you, if you try to change the market through regulation alone, uh, alone and you don't bring the consumer base along, then what inevitably ends up happening is that you create a black market, right? And historically, we've seen that happening during the prohibition in the US, you know, the government banned the sale of alcohol and what you had is just immediately the speakeasies started to pop up everywhere and there were home breweries that were creating their alcohol, right? So as long as there is, there's a demand for a product, that there will always be a supply. Now, the question is whether that supply will be visible in a setting where, uh, where it's legal or whether it will become invisible and more difficult to track in a setting that, is, uh, that makes, makes that supply illegal. So just to come back to your question, 
I think there is definitely there's a lot of power from the from the uh, the demand side in defining what companies should produce and how companies should behave. But at the same time, you cannot always expect on the demand side to know to be able to articulate their, their needs, right? And this is the, the clear example. The best example of this is, is the iPad, right? No one no one no one asked for iPads. No one no one knew that they needed a tablet. But Apple was visionary enough to say, well, here's here's a product you've never thought about, you've never asked for, but you're going to love it. And so, so I think there's there's a little bit of a dance there in which the the the, the market should so so the supplier should listen to the, what the customers want and what the customers need, and maybe help even customers articulate an on on articulated need. But at the same time, they should also be able to come up with solutions and say, well. You've never asked for this one, but we think this is a great product, and we think this product is actually meeting some of the broader concerns that that you don't realize that you have. And, and it's a little bit of a you want to create that tension in the middle to say, okay, well, yes, we 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 see a meeting of the minds between what customers want and what uh, suppliers can produce and 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 want to produce as well. This next question is something that the project has been struggling with. They're struggling to answer for a bit, but maybe with your experience, you, you can have some insight. How can we ensure that financial services can be truly equitable in the financial sector? What do you mean by equitable? Traditionally, you, you understand, so there's, there's two different terms. You have equality and equality of opportunity. And I think everyone can agree that equality of opportunity is great and we should always strive to, to, to level the playing field so that everyone has equal access to, to services and to opportunities. But equitable is more related to equity. And equity is more about... Um, equality of outcome. Now, from a logical perspective, you cannot have both. You cannot have equality of an opportunity and equality of outcome in the same place. You, you, you have to choose, right? Now, equality of outcome, uh, I think it's, it's quite dangerous. And I, I think it, talking about equity in financial services is very, very dangerous because it, could, it basically would mean that everyone, regardless of which decisions they make, everyone ends up with the same thing. Right, and if we want to live in free democratic societies, we need to be able to have to make to, to make our our own decisions and our own choices, and of course to live with the with the consequences of the decisions that we make, which will impact the outcome. So, therefore, I would say, I I, I would I would say that we should be very careful with whether we say we want an equitable financial system because that would basically mean that something some force would need to force the results so that everyone ends up with the same thing but i would definitely say that we should always strive to have an uh, a, an equal an equal access and equal opportunity to the financial services sector right so and it, within this vein you you hear the conversation about um the the unbanked banking the unbanked right you have large populations across the world of people that don't have an identity, they don't have an ID, they don't have a means of proving their identity and therefore they cannot get a bank account. And if they cannot get a bank account, they cannot access, get access to, to finance or at least yeah, to the finance within the system. And usually what happens is that if they need some finance, they end up going to alternative sources which charge extortionate amount of interest. And of course that, that makes it very difficult for, for people to, to, uh, to achieve social mobility, right? So if you think about the best way of achieving social mobility is by having the right to own property, right? Because when you get property, then that's an asset that revaluates, and then you can you can either sell it later on, and that's that's how you achieve social mobility. But in order to have access to uh, to property, for most people, they need to have access to financing, and it's very difficult to get access to 
fair financing if you are not able to get access to the financial system. The financial system. So I think we should definitely strive to have a system that gives equal opportunity and equal access to financing to as many people as possible, um, just because that, that enables their, their mobility. But at the same time, people should be free to make their own decisions as to how much credit they want to take out, at what interest rate they're willing to take the credit out. And also know that there's a, a, an inherent level of risk when it comes to, to, to finances. And that, you know, whenever you make a decision that has an inherent level of risk, you need to be able to live with the consequences of the risk not, pan, not panning out in the way that you want it to be. Thank you for your insights on that. I didn't you know, know there's a difference between equity and equitable. Yeah, and it's, 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 uh, I think it's, it's important because you hear the, the word equity spoken a lot, a lot, a lot about yeah. lately. And I think a lot of people don't really understand that you can't have both. And, and yeah. you, cannot, you, can, you certainly cannot use both terms interchangeably because they have very, very different meanings. And what is the difference between centralized banking and distributive banking? Oh, right. So let me give you an answer that, let me, take, let me take that a little step further so that I can set the context for my answer. What we're seeing in the financial services sector at the moment is it's a, it's a monumental battle of ideologies, right? And these two ideologies are, are as, 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 as opposite as they can be. Now, since the credit crunch of 2008, what happened was that a group of these gruntled technologists, they said, okay, well, we're not happy with the way that, that these centralized financial systems are working. So we're going to propose an alternative that removes central banks from the equation, right? And this, is, this has to do with, with a declining trust in central institutions, which is concerning because central institutions are basically the, the pillars of democracy in the Western world. So, so what happened was that with the publication of the, of the Bitcoin paper by Satoshi Nakamoto, he was basically, he or, or them, because I don't know, we don't know who, who they put behind the paper, they were advocating for creating a decentralized system in which trust could be enabled by, by creating a ledger that everyone had access to at all times. This distributed ledger technology was basically ensuring that every time there was a transaction, that transaction was automatically copied into every single node within that network so that everyone could see what was happening. And so that if anyone tried to change it, it would be virtually impossible to change because they would need to change simultaneously records in thousands of distributed computers. Now, this system was advocating for anonymity. Say, you don't have to say, tell us who you are in order to transact within this, this system, but, at the same time, it's going to be transparent. Everyone will be able to see that a transaction took place. It's also a system that is finite in nature. So if you look at Bitcoin, for example, Bitcoin, we know how many Bitcoins will be issued into the market at all, right? And because it's finite in nature, the value of the Bitcoin, or let's say the, the, the theoretical value of Bitcoin is not going to be debased by having endlessly more and more Bitcoin injected into the economy, right? Because, because of an element of scarcity, uh, assets that are very scarce, they're valued as more desirable than assets that are in, 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 uh, in, in full, full supply. So um, the, old, the, the other idea of, 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 the, of blockchain-based currencies is that um, they're, they're self-regulated. Right? The system doesn't, there's no central authority to appeal to. 
but that the network itself just regulates itself. Now, in contrast, on the other side of the arena, you have the other ideology that is the centralized one. And that ideology is like, no, we need a central bank that has full monopoly over the control of money. Okay, so you start seeing, okay, well, that's, that's different because here there's no central authority and here we have a central authority. Okay, so what, will, what does this look like? Well, that looks pretty much like the system looks at the moment. Um, centralized systems are prone to debasement of currency because then the centralized government or the centralized bank can define how much more currency is injected into the system. So the more money they print, then the, the less value the money that you hold in your account has, right? Because it's, it's basically, it's like having a cake and then just cutting it into more and smaller and smaller uh, slices. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's not private because you have to identify yourself with a bank if you want to be able to transact. So, so in this case, the, the bank needs to know who is making that transaction, right? And that's obviously for, for anti-money laundering uh, regulation. And, uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a diametrically opposed system of values. Now, of course, on, there's, there's pros and cons right over here in the, in the, in the open uh, decentralized model. If something goes wrong, like if for some reason you press the wrong button on your computer and you end up sending your money to someone that you didn't want intend to receive that money, who do you appeal to to correct that? Like good luck getting that money back. You, you probably will never see it because there's no central, there's no one in the middle that can press a button and say, yes, we'll correct that. In the centralized uh, model, at least you have someone that can, you can go to complain to and that they will try to do something to rectify those sort of errors. Um, so, so I would say here, this is about, this, this battle is more about who ends up controlling uh, and having a monopoly over the issuance of currency and inherently over, the, over, over trust. Right? Because the way we trust, the, the way that you can trust um, other people is by referring to this centralized piece of paper that says, yes, the bank uh, is going to pay you X amount of money and therefore we can transact. You know, if I give you this, this, this bit of money, you give me a product or a service, and then we can, even, even if we don't know each other, we, it allows us to, to transact because this money is guaranteeing that you will go to the bank and then you will get, uh, let's say, well, back when the gold was backing up the currency, it was a certain amount of gold, but it's, it's backed up by the central authority. So it's, uh, it, we're, it's, it's amazing because we're really seeing the emergence of these two systems, very, very diametrically opposed systems, just going at each other and trying to, to define who is going to be the, 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 the preferred system of choice in the future when everything goes digital. It's really fascinating to hear about the little microeconomies that blockchain can, can give, but are there gatekeepers to blockchain technology? Um, well, I would say that... Uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that there's gatekeepers to the technology itself, but there's definitely gatekeepers to the applications that run on the technology. Uh, and that would be the, 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 either the people or the companies that program the, the currencies that are being used. If we're, if we're thinking about blockchain as, 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 as the infrastructure on which new currencies can, can, can uh, prop up. So in this case, Bitcoin, well, the gatekeepers will be the people that program the, the Bitcoin application that basically defines how many Bitcoins are going to be produced with, on which schedule uh, that keeps track of the, of, of the, of the value of, uh, of the market when it comes to Bitcoin. That all requires code. And I would say that the people that 
program the code are in some way gatekeepers of the functionality. Um, now, Bitcoin has a, a, not just Bitcoin, but cryptocurrencies have a very clever way of introducing new features into the blockchain uh, by, by voting. So basically, some, anyone can just, anyone that is part of the network can, can program a new feature. And it's up to the nodes to vote on that feature, whether they decide to implement it or not. And if there's a feature that the rest of the community doesn't want, it doesn't get implemented, it, just, it gets voted out. Um, that, of course, is very different to the almost entirely monopolistic approach to any feature on the, on the, on the centralized system. So how do you even go about regulating a system like that from an outside government? And, and in your opinion, should it be regulated? I think again, this, my my answer depends a, a lot, of course, on, on my on my position when it comes to ideologies, right? I think that um, my approach is more let let people decide what they want to use and let people vote with their actions. Uh, it's a more democratic approach to say, well, yeah, there's always going to be options, but um, I think I think people should be allowed to, to choose which option they favor by either which option they choose to use or which option they're willing to pay money for. Um, I, think, I think the paradigm that we're, that we're finding ourselves in today is not, it's not really so much about should we regulate it or not, it's more about who will end up determining the rules that will, uh, that will define the way in which we transact with each other. And because we have these two systems, uh, the only options I see is either it's going to be technology companies are the ones that are going to be developing the algorithms and the, and, the, and the code that will define how these cryptocurrencies operate, or is going to be central banks and central governments that will define monetary policy that will go into, into CBDCs, which are central bank digital currencies, which are, I would say, is that the response, the digital response to cryptocurrencies, right? But this is, of course, state, state issues. So yeah, I don't, I don't really see at the moment any other alternative. It's, uh, it, it really depends on... Is it going to be the technologists or is it going to be the central government government that will define the rules of the future system of money? Um, if should it be regulated, I think there's there needs to be certain guardrails and central a certain framework set around it just to ensure that the law is kept and to ensure that, that the things that we have find valuable as society are not infringed. Uh, but we need to make sure that so technology will not bring them on their own. We need to make sure that if we want to preserve values like freedom, like liberty, like uh, democracy, like the freedom to choose that all these things, we need to develop the systems to protect those things. They will not, they, it will not happen on its own, right? Organically, as technology evolves, it, it, it will just go completely over those unless we define the, the, the guardrails that would ensure that those values continue to, to remain relevant. Well, Chris, we're about twice over the time now, but thank you so much for sharing your insights and really being so concise with your answers. I, I feel on a lot of those questions, we probably could have spent 30 minutes discussing them. But really, it, it, this, is, this is amazing to talk to you. I, I really hope I get to hear from you more again in the future. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure and uh, always happy to talk about these things. I'm uh, very passionate about this, this subject and uh, well, I, I just uh, I hope we have the chance to speak again. Thanks, Chris. Have a great day.